Dwayne's World with Dwayne Russell. Good afternoon. Welcome to the show on this stunning Melbourne day and a very significant day here in Melbourne. And let's be honest, Ron Barassi is a name that uh, is known right around the country. So just going to change it up a little bit today. No midday madness. We're going to spend this first hour just bringing you uh, some of the, the best bits from Ron Barassi State Memorial, which is still going at the MCG, I can just see our very own Gary Lyon has uh, stepped up on the stage to, to pay tribute. Uh, probably another one from the Melbourne Footy Club. Obviously, there's Carlton, North Melbourne, Sydney, his family. There's so many people that want to pay tribute uh, to Ron Barassi. So in this first little bit, we're going to bring you uh, his son, Ron Barassi third, And then a nice little bit of uh, an interview, Eddie Maguire speaking to two of the absolute icons of the sport that uh, coached and played against Ron Barassi in Kevin Sheedy and Lee Matthews. So after one o'clock, we'll get your reactions to what you've heard, maybe some of your favourite memories of Ron Barassi. But uh, let's start off by hearing from Ron's son, Ron Barassi III. On behalf of Dad's wife, Cheryl, my brother and sister, Richard and Sue, Dad's grandchildren, Natalia and Cassian, and Dad long, Dad's longtime manager, Rosemary, I would like to express our extreme gratitude for the support and kindness that all of you have shown during this sad time. It has truly been of great help. Thank you. <laughs> My heart and soul are definitely with Melbourne now but it wasn't always so. As a toddler in the 60s, I barracked for Melbourne. In the late 60s, I was a Carlton fan through and through. In the 70s, when Dad went to North, it took a year, but I eventually turned. In the 80s, I was barracking for Melbourne again. In the 90s, my allegiances moved North interstate and I became a Sydney fan. Four teams in four decades. Some loyal supporter I was. (laughs) Though upon reflection, I was never a single club person belonging to their tribe. My tribe was me, my brother and sister and mum. The chief was dad and he just happened to be a footy legend. Wherever the chief went, our little tribe followed. All these clubs, all these premierships and all that time... I was really barracking for Dad. Footy was personal at a depth I didn't truly understand until Melbourne won the flag in 21. That history was in my blood. To many people, Dad was a legend and a hero. But to our tribe, Dad was, well, Dad. I was fortunate. When I was young, my time spent with Dad was usually while he was working. Although Dad said, always, that he never worked a day in his life. Saturday afternoon footy matches, Sunday morning training and world of sport. That was my usual weekend as a kid. Kicking the footy with Shimmer, Kekka and Croswell in the nets before a game. Being in the room with the players for Dad's pre-game and half-time speeches running amok in the Channel 7 studios and leaving ice creams for Lou Richards to sit on as he did his segment. (laughs) And of course, the sheer joy of a grand final win. Again and again and again and again. 
As a father, dad could be tough. We grew up in the 60s on a new housing estate in Heathmont, then an outer suburb of Melbourne. There were kids everywhere and we were all feral back then. One time I was involved in a fight with an older boy and I was getting soundly beaten. After another whack, I, just, I sat down on the grass and started to cry. I knew I was beat. Unbeknownst to me, looking out from our lounge room window, which overlooked the street below, Dad had witnessed the whole thing. He came storming out onto to the veranda and screamed, Get up and fight! <laughs> he had that fierce, angry look on his face one that many of his players have witnessed over the years while listening to his three-quarter time speeches. That look freaked me out. <laughs> and I threw myself back into the fight. I got knocked down again, of course. It wouldn't matter what the game was or the situation, Dad would never give up. Dad loved a challenge, any challenge. Our family would often spend time during summer at Norman March Smith's house down in Rosebud. When I was about 11, Dad and I were down at the foreshore car park, holding a tennis ball on our way to the beach. Dad asked, do you think I can hit that pole over there? No way, I said. The pole in question, a typical road sign pole about two inches wide, was about 25 metres away. He stopped walking and centred himself. He seemed to focus so deeply you could almost hear it. He let fly and, needless to say, hit the pole. It's part of the rite of passage of a son to test their mettle against their father. Of course, I missed the pole. <laughs> Have you ever tried to beat Ron Barassi at anything? <laughs> Together we played serious tennis and table tennis, snooker and pool. Winning or losing didn't matter, but the competition was always serious. We liked it that way. Our favourite pastime was chess. Dad taught me when I was eight. He found it difficult to play without a challenge. So while I was learning, he would play without his queen. I remember being thrilled when I finally beat him. It had taken about eight years. <laughs> chess was a game that suited him well. It was the combination of strategy and endless possibilities that Dad loved so much. When we played chess, the king would always die. Neither of us ever resigned. If one of us was getting beaten in a tight finish, they would then endeavour to play for a draw. Success with that would always bring howls of laughter. Long ago, Dad had a chance to play the then world champion, Russian Boris Spassky. Spassky offered Dad a draw early in the game. Dad said no and lost. <laughs> he was more interested in having a go and doing his best than any bragging rights over a draw with a grandmaster. Dad lived an extraordinary life, but he had an extremely painful final year. He never complained, though. Towards the end, Dad was still physically strong. A few weeks before he passed away, I was helping him to get out of a chair. He had about 40 kilograms on me, so it wasn't going to be easy. I placed my feet near his and held his hands. 
I started to pull but got nowhere because for no particular reason other than the man he was, he had decided it was a competition. <laughs> and he started pulling me towards himself with a big smile on his face. Right to the very end, Dad was cheeky, loved a laugh and had a magnificent sense of humour. Dad was a man who did not play it small. He intuitively knew that when we let our own light shine, we consciously give other people permission to do the same. Dad had the courage to do this, and he believed that we all could. He always put the clubs ahead of the individual and the game ahead of the clubs. He knew too that the game would be nothing like it is today without all of you, the supporters. He would thank you and only ask that whatever your pursuit, whatever your goal, that you give it your best. The air is full of courage and all you need to do is take a deep breath and move forward. I'd like to stand here today not only as my father's son, but also my namesake, Ronald James Barassi, my grandfather, Dad's father. I'm sure Ron Senior and Dad's mother, Alza, would say to Dad, well done, we're proud of you. We are proud of you too, Dad, and I want to thank you for being true, fearless and courageous enough to be yourself and play out your own life. I love you, Dad. Thank you. Yeah, beautiful words there from Ron Barassi Jr. So if you're just joining us, uh, no midday madness today. The Ron Barassi State Memorial is going on as we speak at the MCG in this first hour of the show. We're going to take you through some of the speeches that have been had and are still going on down there at the MCG. Sam Edmund said, now fitting 31 degrees today, and it's on the 10th of November. Of course, he used to sign... Uh, he's autographed 17 for 10, 17 grand finals for 10 premierships. Julian DeStoop with you. Very special first hour of Dwayne's World today as we bring you the tributes or some of the tributes from the Rombarassi State Memorial at the MCG. He's one off the 40 weeks temper here, says Jules. The great Barassi is letting us know he's around 31 degrees today for the great number 31 from Melbourne. Someone doesn't know why we're doing this, which is tone deaf. Uh, to say the least, given he's an Australian sporting icon, not just a Australian rules football icon or a Victorian icon. Uh, he is known right around the country as uh, one of our more significant contributors uh, to sport. So let's get back uh, to the MCG. So Eddie Maguire is your master of ceremonies, and he sat down with two other legends of the sport in Lee Matthews and Kevin Sheedy. Lee, let me come to you first because uh, Brass was the generation ahead of you, and you actually yep. watched him as a, a little boy on the telly. Well, yes, I never I never played on the same fields as Brass. I think he played his last game in 69. I played my first game later in the year, but I just watched him as a little kid growing up, and he was Mr Football. And that, uh, that uh, picture that we see occasionally when he's a big alpha male, big powerful man in the Carlton outfit, blue jumper, white shorts, and white... Bootlaces, and he used to say to us little kids, "If you can't be a footballer, at least look like one." <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, yeah, what was your first uh, impression of the great RDB? Well, luckily, uh, TV came to Australia in '56. I was about uh, 10 years of age, 
and that was the introduction to really Ron Barassi because um, the people in those days <clears throat> never had a lot of cars and we, we got to see him on the television obviously and um, uh, he was just magnificent. He was sort of like for a kid at 10 years of age, 9 years of age, he, he was like Spartacus or Ben-Hur, the two great movies that come around out in the 1960s of that era. And uh, But four years later, uh, Kevin Bartlett, myself and another player called Kerry Ryan, we were invited down here in school holidays to be training with uh, the great Brian Dixon and uh, those sort of players, Keneally. So the thing that impressed me about the guy was that he was just such a fantastic build of a person and we were two skinny little sticks rolling around KB and myself uh, just dreaming that maybe you never know we could make it. And that Melbourne team that come through in that era, Keneally and Townsend and these sorts of blokes, Kenny Emsel and John Lord, they, they actually inspired a lot of young men that uh, really wanted to make it in life, not, not just only football. Lee, at Hawthorne, the battles against North Melbourne in the 70s against the Supercoach was something else. They were legendary, yes. Uh, when I think, uh, well, they played in five consecutive grand finals and three of them were against uh, Hawthorne and the other two, they knocked, they knocked Hawthorne out in the preliminary finals. So the main rivalry in the, uh, the mid-70s uh, with Brass. And uh, when you look back on that vision, isn't it good that you didn't wear club uniforms back then? <laughs> it would have been much more boring without that open neck, that... Well, that striped shirt that he, uh, that he won the premiership in in 77, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Kevin, for you, uh, you sort of took over from Brass with the thinking, the lateral thinking, the Dale Carnegie style of approach to football. H- how much of an inspiration was he to you in your thinking when you became a coach? Yeah, well, he was. Um, Tom Hafey was my coach, very straight down the line. Um, you knew when you were going to play against Barassi as a player, particularly in the 70s when we were at 74 grand final, uh, that always had you a little bit on edge as a, an opponent. And, of course, um, I mean, I remember one day I was playing here at the MCG and I've got Barry Richardson, uh, Colin Beard and myself. We're all in the goal square with John Nichols, Cesarlinka and Sid Jackson. Nothing else ahead of us for about 100 metres. I've gone, oh, that was very nerve-wracking. So, but he, he really made you think about what the other t- coach could do to you as a, a player. Um, but on the uh, adventurism of him, and uh, I-, I thought he's been sensational. And, of course, um, probably one of the main reasons I ended up going up to the start the Giants was because of uh, Barras and Robert Walls and, and, and Lee. We all ended up going north, make sure the game got uh, to its fruit- fruitful self. And I think in the end, um, as a coach... Uh, he was uh, inspirational in me having a look outside what my coach used to teach me, which is Hafey. We were the fittest team in it at Richmond, but you had, and he said, look, if you've got to go overseas, go overseas and chase knowledge. And he was brilliant at that. And uh, that's what you learned from a person. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, we forget, we used to stop off at Werribee for a break on the way to Geelong. <laughs> I mean, that's how bad we were, so... If anybody needed a psychologist, I need one after looking back at that. But it was a different era, obviously, and we needed to have inspiration in the country and definitely Ron inspired not only opponents but people in general in life. And I think that's what our great country's about. We have many magnificent people in all sports and our Olympic Games and the footballers and the cricketers obviously uh, have been fantastic. And you mentioned one in uh, your, your answer there. The great Sid Jackson is here with us today. So welcome, Sid. Uh, he loved you, mate. Uh, Sid you Sid. Guy. Great guy. Thanks, Sid. Um, 
You wouldn't believe, uh, before we came on stage, I spoke to Cheryl, and Cheryl said to me that the first time she ever spoke to, about football to Ron, he said, now, Cheryl, I understand you don't know anything about the game. You couldn't draw a football. But she, he said there are four teams in the AFL, v, VFL history that start with F. And she said, right, OK. And he said, Footscray, Fitzroy, Fremantle and something Collingwood. Flaming, flaming Collingwood. Uh, we made him. What are you talking about? And I ask you this, Lee, because you coached against Barass <laughs> in his last game for the Sydney Swans of all people who are coming out of nowhere and they put us out of the finals again at Collingwood. Yeah, it was amazing. And well, like, Brass's last uh, coaching year at Melbourne was 85. That was my last year as a player. So I never kind of uh, uh, coached against him except when he went to Sydney and I was still coaching Collingwood. And yeah, the last game of 95, Collingwood had to win to uh, play finals. And, uh, and, and we lost. Brass, of course, was coaching the Swans in that few years that he, that he went up north there when they were at a, at a low ebb. So uh, it ended up being my last game at uh, Collingwood. And his last coaching game ever uh, at the Swans that particular day. Yeah. He was a great man at pulling people together. Now tell me about the Pisces lunch. Yep. Well the Pisces is, uh, we discovered that in footy there's about one in every 12 people who are Pisces. Is that so right? I don't know how that <laughs> happened. But Ron, Ron was a Pisces and I was a Pisces and there's about 12 or 14 of us that uh, were, were Pisces. It started off maybe six or eight. Mike Sheehan I think started. Richard Collins from the Swans probably. And Brass. Can I give you some more names? Yep. Sam Kekovich, Peter Hudson, Kevin Bartlett, Jared Healy, Matthew Richard, and Michael O'Loughlin. Not a bad yeah. lunch. And a few others here, but there's a, we've only got a table of 14, so there's a limit. Right, OK. <laughs> Unfortunately, we've probably got one spot now, so that's a, a, a nasty way of getting another spot. But um, no, so we actually used to meet yeah, once a year, and, and uh, we, we hadn't seen Brass much in the COVID years, and we knew that the sort of dementia was. Uh, I didn't see much in the last couple of years, but that was really great too. Uh, we, I spent a week with Brass uh, uh, game viewing in Adelaide in, uh, in uh, Africa in the mid-90s. Uh, There's a group going over and everyone else dropped off except me and Ron. So we, uh, we went round Botswana. I, I, don't think the, I think the Lions were a bit scared of uh, Ron, actually, because they'd leave you alone. But, so that's where I got to know him a bit more personally than clearly just as a, an observer. Imagine being yeah. the poor lion looking up and seeing Ron Barassi and Lee Matthews coming at you in the tundra. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, Sheeds, can I ask you, mate? Uh, we spoke uh, about Ron last week, and you said you wanted to make one point about Ron Barassi that made him so special. I, I thought it was mentioned that... In his very early 70s, about 73, when he saw that young lady being really killed in Fitzroy Street, I thought that was a... I mean, that, to me, is a legend of a legend um, action uh, because he wasn't 50, he wasn't 40, he was 73, 74 years of age. And uh, just to straight away go out and save that young lady from being beaten up by six ugly sort of men that... Um, I think that... That, to me, is a character of the person really shining through. And uh, obviously he's come through his club at Melbourne and the clubs he, he played and coached for. And I think that's why we all loved him and still do and still always will. And you could really see it shine out in, in his uh, son, uh, Tom. Uh, sorry, Ron. And then, of course, Richard, who I met before, two lovely young men. Um, and I think that uh, what a fantastic family they've been, obviously, to go through the hardship of losing a legendary father like this. But to see that his son talk about him so well 
uh, from the heart. I could have listened to him from, uh, I told him outside, mm. I could have listened to Ron Brassie Jr. for another hour on the way he spoke about his father. Beautifully said, Kevin. Lee, to wrap up, um, a final thought on Ron Brassie. Well, enormously successful player, enormously successful coach, like a real statesman of the game. He's been a almost a scandal-free figurehead of the game. Um, he was Mr Football back in the 60s, with apologies to Ted Whitten, who they, he and Ron used to actually argue who was they Mr Football. They would fight over who was Mr and Mrs Football. Oh, no, it was no a great relationship. But, <laughs> about that. but what we do know, there's still no other Mr Football that surpasses Ron Brassie 70, 60, 70 years later. One little anecdote as we finish on the Mr and Mrs Football. Uh, at a State of Origin game, I think you were coaching, Kevin, I think we are in Adelaide, and uh, Ron had a couple of reds the, uh, at night and uh, had gone to bed and uh, woken up in the middle of the night and uh, uh, thought that he'd uh, go to the bathroom. And unfortunately, he opened up the wrong door and found himself out in the corridor. And the door <laughs> shut behind him and uh, he was in the nick. And uh, he quickly sobered up and thought, what do I do? So he banged on the door next door. And uh, unfortunately for him, it was Ted Whitten's door. <laughs> And Ted went to the door and opened it up with a chain and looked out and said, who's Mr. Football? <laughs> and Bruce said, uh, that's a great... open the door, Ted. He said, who's Mr. Football and who's Mrs. Football? <laughs> and that was the great manly love they had for each other and Skilts and Bobby, uh, Billy Goggin and all the team going over there and Mate. Kevin Sheen and the likes. It was a wonderful time and just so much of him. Um, I couldn't think of two better people to speak on behalf of the legacy of the great Ron Barassi than these two, Kevin Sheedy and Lee Matthews. Thanks, guys. Yeah, great stories there from Kevin Sheedy and Lee Matthews. So let's get the Melbourne perspective now with our very own Gary Lyon. Ron Barassi will not only be remembered as one of the most significant figures in the history of sport in this country, but he'll also be remembered for being one of the greatest educators this country has seen. It stands to reason that a man who had such a profound impact on the game of Australian rules football first as a player and captain and then as a coach, would have impacted the lives of so many of us who played or simply followed the game directly or indirectly. I was fortunate to be in both camps. He captured my imagination as a football-obsessed youngster in the country who got no closer to him than via the pictures on our television. And then, as fate would have it, as the coach of my football team, as the selector of my state side and eventually as a colleague in the media. Never was there a great sense of familiarity or even friendship. I never allowed myself that privilege. Always, however, was there ultimate respect or surrealism, hero-worshipping and an unyielding gratefulness that I was in some way blessed to have been the beneficiary of his company and of his knowledge and wisdom. To be able to say I knew Ron Barassi will be enough. It's only fitting then that we all reflect on the lessons from one of the game's great teachers, one of life's great teachers, lessons learned from a life so thoroughly well lived. For those fortunate enough to have, play, uh, to have watched him play, he was the embodiment of everything that we've come to love, respect and admire in any of the greats that have followed in his footsteps. To talk to those that have played with him and to read the tributes that have flowed in recent weeks, he may just be the greatest competitor to have ever played the game. What a moniker to have associated with your name. Regardless of talent, of physical attributes, of genetic blessings, the competitor is the title that you would love to have the most. He taught us 
that when everything else deserts us, as long as you are standing, you can compete. Ron Barassi, the ultimate competitor. He taught us that loyalty and commitment is not exclusive to a particular club or organisation, but to the club or organisation that you are loyal and committed to. That to have the strength of your convictions to go down a particular path, the path that is right for you, may be the most difficult decision that you ever have to make. At 72 years of age, if anyone had earned the right to watch the world go by, it was Ron Barassi. Yet on New Year's Eve 2008, while sitting quietly in St Kilda, Rod witnesses a woman being assaulted by a group of thugs. I ask you all, old and young, what would you do? For Ron Barassi, there is no question. He jumps out of his seat, he comes to the aid of the woman, tackling the men in the process. He's set upon by the men and suffers facial bruising, sore ribs and an arm injury. The lady in question has a swollen face and black eyes and in the report that I read it quoted her as saying, I think if he hadn't jumped in, it would have been much worse for me. How many people throughout his time on this earth are grateful that Ron was the type of man that never hesitated to jump in? Ron Barassi, educator, ultimate competitor, inspirational leader, respect builder, with the strength of his convictions that few possess, and a defender of us all. We'll miss you, Brass. Thank you. So that was Gary Lyon giving the Melbourne perspective. Let's now get the Carlton perspective from Brent Croswell. And following Brent Croswell will be the North Melbourne perspective from Sam Kikovich. You want to know about Barassi? Let me give you an insight, okay? Barassi came to the rooms at half time near mad. He was seething with frustration and anger. He kicked the lock off his hinges, turned and smashed a silver jug full of cordial from a table. It could have broken his arm. The cordial had sprayed over the faces of three prominent Carlton committeemen standing nearby. They didn't move a muscle. He stormed around the room menacingly and no one dared catch his eye. If we were going badly, we knew not to be the first in the huddle at quarter time, nor up the race at half time. Let the mugs run in first, we thought, and cop a brassy blast. I learned fast. Head to the bathroom, lock the toilet door, come out when brassy started to feel like he needed to say something positive. That was my mantra. Ball picks up hand pass to Barassi. Barassi hooks it in. He shapes up. He shoots for an acute angle. Oh, remarkable. Barassi drove Carlton with a frightening, violent fierceness in those early years. Glorious mark taken by Ronald Dale Barassi. His competitive drive was almost pathological and on the field as a player. Oh, Barassi tells him. And as a coach, he was a force of nature. And this with his other martial attributes, his bull neck, his massive chest, his long muscular arms and his powerful thighs, a body that needed no building up in the gym, his courage made him indomitable. He was a player for the ages, a coaching powerhouse for the times. In 1968, with Barassia's coach, Carlton broke a 20-year drought when they beat Essendon in the grand final. But these achievements were a mere prelude to the greatest triumph, the 1970 grand final victory over Collingwood. Nothing on his home. Not a bad player to leave alone, is it? Oh, oh you kidding. Wouldn't Barassi be tearing his hair out? Collingwood well in command of the stage. The fair way out, and he's on an angle, but he puts his oh. last way. 
half-time in that astonishing game. We were nearly eight goals down. But when we walked in, we expected a brassy tirade. But no, to our amazement, he was quite calm and considered. And he had a strategy. He urged us to play on at all costs, to handball. This was revolutionary. In the second half, we began to get back in the match. And then, incredibly, in the last minutes of the game, we hit the front and we held on. We had won. That's all over. Carlton got up in the dying stages. Fantastic comeback. They were going to the world at half time. It seemed a miracle at the time. And Brassie had played a masterful role. He had anticipated the more frenetic handball craze modern game. The origins of his powerful football personality, his almost maniacal drive to compete, will always be a source of wonder to me. It is fitting, then, that Verassi, this great football figure, should be remembered in this vast stadium, the MCG, where he began to make his name. Keep our memories of him here on the field of battle, because domestic surroundings would only diminish him. How could it be otherwise? He'd achieved such a consummation in football. We go back a long way, Barassi and I. This was 1967 when he drove down to my Tasmanian country town seeking a recruit. Wearing a blue suit, as I remember. His passing is so very, very sad. Well, here we are back at Arden Street. Uh, how do I feel? I'll be implicitly candid with you. I feel a bit eerie. I still have visions of this intimidating sight. Florid with rage, eyes bulging, blood vessels protruding from his face, nostrils flared, delivering a tirade of invective and unbridled abuse that would leave you in a catatonic state. But he was the master psychologist. He knew exactly how many buttons he could press on an individual and how to best extract the performance from him. He knew when he was in the room and, God, he was larger than life, a behemoth of a person. But there's two words that best depict the spirit and the essence of the Australian character, and they are fair dickum. And there's no one more fair dickum than Ron Barassi. Barassi has never known failure. And in Melbourne, Aussie rules and Barassi are interchangeable names. When he arrived in 72, we were a fledgling club, there's no doubt about that. The level of expectation soared, the disciplines changed, the responses changed, I think the whole language changed. I mean, North Melbourne, they do things in a really good way, a big way. If you're a buddy, got courage and you're prepared to commit yourself, we will make you a valuable player. We missed the finals in his initial year, but the foundation was well and truly laid. We played finals for the next seven years. I'm extraordinarily proud of you. 75 was an amazing year. But I want you to make me the proudest coach in league history, Bruce. And there was no way in the world that we were going to lose that grand final. And I want you to be proud to be proud of every last year. Our first ever premiership. Hey, Mickey, you haven't got twice tonight. really the coming of the age of the club. It took us 50 years to venture from base camp to the summit. Well, Rusty, you've got to give him full marks. I'm And all of a sudden, North Melbourne 
became a very, very respected entity. I left midway through 77, but North went on to win another premiership. So I've confronted with a 27-point deficit at three-quarter time. Now, in the normal circumstances, 27-point deficit at three-quarter time in the grand finals, like 127 in the home and away game. 177 looks like being Magpies year. But such the nature of the man, as he always said, the only risk not to be taken is, to, is not to take a risk at all. He threw the magnets around, played an attacking mode, which was always his nature, and he was vindicated and proven to be correct, you know, when it was drawn. And we'll be back here next week. You know, gave them plenty of confidence to know they can come up the following week. And of course, the rest is history. The grand final is all over. What a mighty performance by North Melbourne. What a mighty performance by the Supercase from Barassi. If I could speak to him one more time. I'd say thank you and I'd probably apologise. Perhaps causing a few grey hairs, but by and large, I'd have to say thank you because without your guidance or your tutelage, who knows where I might be today. I think that's what I would say in a very simple way. Brent Croswell and Sam Kekovich, former Sydney Swans chairman Richard Collis, reflects on Barassi's move to the Swans at their absolute lowest ebb in 1993 and his long-lasting impact on the Sydney market. A decade after the relocation of South Melbourne, Australian football in Sydney was to be candid a wasteland. By 1993, the club, and hence the game, was in a death spiral. A circuit breaker was desperately needed, but from where and by whom? What was needed was a solution that involved genuine long-term substance. In the eight years out of the game, in Ron's opinion, the coach-player relationship dynamic had changed dramatically. And on field, the strategy of coaching a team had changed even more. However, Ron Barassi was still the biggest name in the history of Australian football and, in fact, the best-known identity across all the football codes in Australia, not just in Melbourne. And, as has been mentioned, he envisaged coaching an AFL team in Sydney before it was even contemplated. By his own admission, Ron, however, questioned whether he had the energy and the knowledge of the contemporary game to, at 57, coach again. So I think, given what was at stake, he would have asked himself the question, if not me, then who? So what unfolded? In 1993, Ron won one game out of 16, a 6% winning ratio. In 94, it climbed to 18%, and in 95, it was 36%, and the club had a percentage of 100. In 1996, the team that Rodney uh, Ede largely inherited from Ron, and I'm not in any way diminishing Rodney's achievements, had a 74% win ratio. He finished on top of the ladder and played in its first grand final in 51 years. Now, that's what I call a trend. And the following is what I would call a legacy. In the 50 years prior to Ron joining the club, we played in a miserable six finals games. We lost them all. Five of them we were belted in. In the 25 years post-Ron's involvement, the club has played in 50 finals and had 25 victories, including seven grand finals resulting in two premierships. 
Now, no one at the club thinks that we are masters of the universe and that's the most extraordinary thing that's happened. But there is now clarity and a sense of purpose within the club that wasn't there for half a century. And it has progressively found that quality substance. The three longest serving coaches in our history are the three that succeeded Ron. And nine of the 10 Swans games record holders have or are still playing in the post-Barassi era. Tellingly, the game in Sydney is taken more seriously. But to those who have an influence over the national competition, trust me, there is still much to do to fulfil Ron's vision. It is one of the greatest privileges of my life to get to know Ron and to work so closely with him. And I can say unashamedly that I respected him greatly, but more importantly, I loved him. Farewell, great man. Beautiful words there from former Sydney chairman Richard Coles. Yeah, alongside the late Alan Aylett, uh, no bigger supporter of the national competition than Ron Barassi.